I think there are a few different, or at least two different ways we can talk about justice in our world. Uh, one of those ways we can talk about justice is we can say we ought to act justly. We ought to basically do the right thing at all the right times. We ought to treat people fairly. That is, of course, it's not always an easy thing to do. Sometimes it costs us something. Sometimes uh, it's hard to tell what the right thing is. But I actually think that uh, that is the way of justice that seems harder but is really easier. Because the other side of justice is what do we do once things have already gone wrong? What do we make of that? We've seen our society struggling with those sorts of questions. Uh, And frankly, they're good questions a lot of the time. What do we do about the fact that our nation's history is maybe a little more checkered than we're comfortable with? Uh, We see people pulling down statues in different parts of the country. What do we make of that? Do we just respond and and say, you know, that's that's dumb. Like you're just trying to undo history or something like that. Or, Or do we acknowledge that there is a certain amount of pain and angst and anger behind some of those things and that the way to deal with that is actually difficult and it's hard? Now, let me be clear, because I don't want to lose everyone <laughs> at the very beginning of the message. What I'm not saying is, let's, go all, let's all go down, pull down some statues. Uh, I'm not saying everyone who's pulling down statues is doing a great thing. I'm just saying that when we are dealing with things that have happened and that were bad and wrong in the past, and we try and make them right, that's the hard part of justice. That's the hard part of justice. It's much easier to be good today than try and undo evil tomorrow. Uh, So you ever heard the phrase, uh, better to ask forgiveness than permission? Yeah, have you maybe even used that one yourself a couple of times? It's actually not better to do it that way, is it? I I know when we say that, what we really mean is uh, I don't want to get bogged down by the bureaucracy and the committees and all that kind of stuff. I'm just going to do the good thing, and we'll deal with the fallout from it later. But actually, forgiveness is when things have gone badly, life has been broken, and now we're trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again somehow. It's a lot harder to deal with justice after the wrong has been done instead of to work to be just people today. And what's God's verdict on that? What does God say about, okay, things have gone wrong, they've gone badly, they are broken now, and I am in the business of making that right. And in the book of Joel, he gives us two sides of what that looks like. The first thing he does is he says, I will restore the people who repent. And that's been... I think, a really fun conversation to have with each other. Talking about how, how do we be people who are ready to receive God's restoration? How do we be people who are ready for God to give us good things going forward when maybe he was telling us what we're doing and being today is not what he wants? We, we repent, right? We turn around. We say, I'm not going to do those things anymore. We do it not as a matter of form, but as a conviction of our heart saying, no, it, we really have to do this. This is important. It's significant. We're really sorry. We're not just play acting at it. And we understand that God will act to forgive and restore when we come to him in that sort of way. But what about... What about the people who don't repent? 
What about the people who say either, I didn't do anything wrong, or who say, I don't care, what are you going to do about it? Now, of course, when we talk about those sorts of people, uh, we're not just talking about people who aren't here in church this morning, are we? See, that's the easy thing. Oh, and by the way, when I say not just people who aren't here in church this morning, I also mean we're not just talking about the other people you can see in church. We're talking about ourselves, too. Jesus died for all of us, not for everyone but me. He died for all of us. So what do we do with the people who don't repent? What do we do with the people who refuse to receive God's restoration for one reason or another? And more importantly, what will God do? That's what this passage in the book of Joel is about. It says, hey, people of Israel, I judged you because you disobeyed the covenant. But now you have come home and I have gladly accepted you. And you're asking, what about all those people who, did all, who are also covenant breakers in a sense? I don't have a covenant with them like I do with you, but they are, they've gone out and they've hurt others. They've hurt you. They've broken the way the world should be. They're messing it up even now. What am I going to do with them? Well, the second thing that God says, but the first thing that I'm going to talk about this morning is that the book of Joel tells us in chapter 3 that God's authority and his power to judge are absolute. God's authority and power and right to judge are absolute. Let me point your attention here in Joel chapter 3. We're going to start in verse 9. God says, proclaim this among the nations. Prepare for war. Rouse the warriors. Let all the fighting men draw near and attack. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weaklings say, I am strong. Come quickly, all you nations from every side and assemble there. I like this. I, I love how this is expressed. Because God says, take your best shot against me. Bring every tool and weapon you have to bear. If you want to have an argument with me over what is just, over how justice will have its reign in this world, bring it on. Love that about God. He always does this to us in every single place. He says, let's deal in truth and in reality. We're not going to pull any punches. We're going to tell all of the truth. We have this, uh, this thing that we do uh, in, our, uh, in our culture, especially, you know, we're, uh, we were originally, back, we've been listening to a Revolutionary War podcast in my family, and so we're remembering that most Americans originally came over from England, and American culture was hugely shaped by English, by British culture more generally. And do you know one thing that's really true about the British is they're very reserved people. You ever experienced that? As I uh, came across a Scottish preacher once, Alistair Begg. I, he came and did a chapel at Biola University one day. And he was talking about, yeah, the British, you know, they, they, don't, they don't go with displays of emotion. They're not big on that, especially, you know, the, the English, it's very true as well. And uh, uh, he told this story about uh, a, 
a, a man who is an Englishman who is captaining an aircraft carrier uh, in World War II or some such time. There was some sort of ship. And they were in a storm, and the wind was blowing so hard that the decks started to peel off the ship. And he turned to uh, you know, his first officer, whoever it was, and he said, Well, you don't see that every day now, do you? <laughs> Reserved people. And we're often that way with the truth as well. Yeah, it's kind of impolite just to tell people the straight truth a lot of the time, isn't it? We just we kind of want to cover it over. We don't point out people's, uh, people's flaws or the things that they do wrong unless we really have to. Now, some of us are built in sort of the opposite way, and we're able to speak truth into people's lives, and that's actually really important and really significant when it's done in the context of love and care and concern. But I think for most of us, the thing that we struggle with is really being straightforward and honest. But God doesn't struggle with that. And God's good at it because not only does he come out and say, here's everything that's wrong. I'm not going to leave you in the dark about that. He comes in and he says, and here's all that I offer in the midst of that. Here is how I will walk with you and love you and bring repair to all of these broken things. He tells us not just part of the truth, not just the bad stuff, but he brings the good stuff out as well. And that's what God's doing here. He's saying, okay, you're saying that you're so great, rest of the world. You don't need to repent. You don't need to be restored. You can make it on your own. Let's find out whether or not that's true. Come on. Bring out your armies. Marshal every resource. And we'll do the last day right here and right now. This fits uh, what we see in our world. People really live like this. We really live like this. Sometimes we do it in ignorance where we say, you know, uh, uh, my sin doesn't matter that much. It's not that big a deal. I don't need to worry about you know, cleaning up my language. I don't need to worry about cleaning up my kindness. I don't need to worry hard about cleaning up these other things. They have much more pressing issues, like whether or not the Seahawks are going to win today. That's for you, Cal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, folks, it's still going to be a good class, even though he's a Broncos fan. <laughs> I got more important things to do. And God says, there's nothing more important. He said, no, God, I really think there is. I really think things will be fine. Things will be fine if I don't deal with my sin. Do it out of sort of this blissful ignorance. But it's also the case that people directly challenge God. That's sort of an indirect challenge where we're saying, okay, God, let's see if it really matters. I will ignore the issue until you do something about that. But it's also true that we come out and we say, God, you're wrong. You're wrong. You want to say that this thing that I'm doing is wrong? You want to say that you know, I ought not to, to live with my partner before we get married or that we don't need to get married, you know, I, that we need to get married at all? We don't need those things. Marriage is just a piece of paper. Who do you think you are, God? Calling me into those sorts of things. Telling me how I ought to live my life. Who do you think you are, God? Of course, the answer is right there. He thinks he's God. He thinks he knows you know, better than we do. But we have those kinds of discussions and debates with them, don't we? No, I don't know if I really buy what God's saying here. I don't know if I really believe God's word. 
I'll just make up my own word instead. Surely that'll be good enough. Or sometimes uh, we say, you know, if God really cared, he'd show up and he'd do something about it. You ever seen like on a, on a TV show, maybe someone, they're in a bad spot and, and, and they, they make a deal with God. I remember this happened in, in Frasier where uh, Frasier, I think Niles was, I don't know if you remember this TV show, it's you know, 20 or 30 years old, but uh, Niles uh, is, is in the hospital and Frasier makes this deal with God that he'll always be nice to Niles if only God will, uh, will heal Niles. And uh, Niles, of course, drives Fraser crazy, and Fraser really wants to break his deal with God. Uh, and then finally, Fraser finds a technicality, a loophole, right? And it's like, well, someone else promised before me that if God would make Niles better, that you know, they would do X, Y, or Z, so I don't have to keep up my end of the bargain anymore. Now, uh, let me be clear, first of all, uh, God doesn't cut deals like that. That's what human beings do. Say, if you give me this, I'll give you that. God says, you've got nothing to give me, but I will give you everything anyway. Folks, you don't need to cut a deal with God. You don't have to do that. He's better than that, even if we're not. He's better than that. But he does say, I'm going to teach you how to live. And this is what good living looks like, and this is what wrong living looks like. And consequences will come for it. But sometimes we, we come out and we say, you know, God can't, he won't really do anything. He can't really do anything. Maybe it's even overtly hostile. People mock the wisdom of God, making their own wisdom. Nietzsche uh, is an interesting philosopher. Uh, he uh, proclaimed, God is dead. I'm going to write a, read a quote from Nietzsche to you in just a minute. But Nietzsche uh, I want to be clear that he's more complicated than the guy who said God is dead. All people are. Uh, we like to set up, uh, uh, scare, uh, what are they called, straw men. We like to set up straw men. And so the people who disagree with us are, are like this. They're all evil and horrible and terrible. And we meet them and they're actually nice. <laughs> Maybe they're nicer than we are. Nietzsche was something like that in some ways. But Nietzsche said this, God is dead. God remains dead, and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves, the murderers of all murderers? What was holiest and mightiest of all that the world has yet owned has bled to death under our knives. Who will wipe this blood off us? What water is there for us to clean ourselves? What festivals of atonement, what sacred games shall we have to invent? Is not the greatness of this deed too great for us? Must we ourselves not become gods simply to appear worthy of it? You don't have to follow everything that he said there. But what Nietzsche was really pointing out, he, was, he meant something along the lines of what Rudolf Bultmann, a New Testament scholar in the late 19th and early 20th centuries, said. Bultmann said, It is impossible to use electric light and the wireless and to avail ourselves of modern medical and surgical discoveries, and at the same time to believe in the New Testament world of spirits and miracles. We're too smart, they're saying. We've moved past that infantile belief in a world of spirits and miracles. That was Nietzsche's point as well. God is dead. We killed him. We got too smart. The enlightenment came, and we can never go back. 
It's interesting. I love the way Bultmann phrases it. Uh, it's impossible to use electric light in the wireless. You know what I love saying? I, I love that. Because those are so lame. Electric light. They were using incandescent light bulbs. We've got LEDs. <laughs> the wireless, the radio. You've got to be kidding me, right? Those are so old-fashioned technologies. And we still believe in God. A hundred years after Bultmann, longer after Nietzsche, even with the rise of the nuns in the U.S. and in the West, belief in God is still the very most popular worldview, the very most widely accepted worldview in the world. We don't all agree on what God. That's the next question. But Nietzsche and Bultmann spoke too soon. And what we see out of our passage in Joel is that God will answer this sort of arrogance in the way that it deserves. He'll invite the whole world to gather all of its might and stand against him at the valley of decision. And there we'll see who is God. See, God's judgment isn't just about, it's not about at all God's petty anger. It's actually about what is the world? How is it? Who is good and who is not? Aren't those the questions where we, we long to have them answered? Even if we believe, as we do, that we know the answers, we want the day when finally it'll be clear and everyone will go, oh, that was it. Even if it's a little scary at the same time. C.S. Lewis said it this way in Mere Christianity. He says, God will invade our world. But I wonder whether people who ask God to interfere openly and directly in our world quite realize what it will be like when he does. See, most folks, uh, the, the new atheists, people like Richard Dawkins, they're like, well, if God's, why is God so hidden? This is exactly what Lewis is talking about way back in the 40s. Why is God so hidden? If there really was a God, wouldn't we see him so much more clearly? Why isn't he, you know, splitting open the skies and being like, seriously, I told you not to do that. He's way too subtle. And so he must not exist. But Lewis says, people who say that don't realize what it will be like when God does appear. Lewis continues, when that happens, it's the end of the world. When the author walks on the stage, the play is over. God is going to invade all right, but what is the good of saying you are on his side then when you see the whole natural universe melting away like a dream and something else, something it never entered your head even to conceive, when that something else comes crashing in, something so beautiful to some of us and so terrible to others that none of us will have any choice left. For this time, it will be God without disguise, something so overwhelming that it will either strike irresistible love or irresistible horror into every creature. It will be too late then to choose your side. There is no use saying you choose to lie down when it has become impossible to stand up. That will not be the time for choosing. It will be the time when we discover which side 
we have really chosen, whether we realized it before or not. Now, today, this moment is our chance to choose the right side. God is holding back to give us that chance. And it won't last forever. We must take it or leave it. Lewis has rephrased what I mean when I share with you Philippians 2, 10 to 11, where it says, At the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And I've explained that to you many times before, and I'll do it again right now, that when it says every knee will bow, it means every knee will bow by choice or because it is finally forced to bow. Some will bow in wonder, gratitude, and joy. Others will bow in terror and fear. And they'll bow in terror and fear because when the day of judgment comes, God will pay back every person's evil upon them. This is the first part of our passage in Joel. He says this, I will put them on trial, verse two and a half. I will put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, to my people Israel, because they scattered my people among the nations and divided up my land. They cast lots for my people and traded boys for prostitutes. They sold girls for wine to drink. If we read that now, I think we recoil. What an awful, terrible thing to sell these people into slavery. Boys and girls so that they can satisfy their lusts. But we need to understand that this was something no one wanted to happen to them, but something that everybody did in war. When the army came in and they conquered the land, they often, if they could, killed all the men and sold all the women and children into slavery. It's what everybody did. It was one of the besetting sins of the day. Maybe when God accuses the nations of this, the nations would say back, that's no big deal. Everybody does that, God. What sort of defense is everybody does that? And I think that it ought to open up our eyes to the things that are happening in our own culture. It ought to humble us. Not because we'll look around and say, look at all these bozos out there, because it, it reminds us that we don't always know what our worst sins are until another age or another culture will reveal them to us. People didn't defend slavery in the 19th century because they're like, I totally know this is wrong, but I'm just going to do it anyway. They defended slavery because everyone else did because their neighbors practiced slavery, because their conscience was so seared and broken by sin in the world that they could no longer tell by themselves all the things that were right and wrong. And the same is true of you and I. And we, we can't look into our hearts all by ourselves and tell what all of our sins are. David prays somewhere in the Psalms, Lord, reveal to me my secret sins. 
because he knew he didn't recognize all of them. He knew some were common to him and to the people of his day such that no one recognized them as sin anymore. And God says it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter if everyone else does it. It doesn't matter if you couldn't tell that it was wrong or not. It was wrong. And I'm not going to let you get away with that. And here's where some of the hope starts to come into this passage. Because remember that this book is written to people where God is saying, Hey, you folks, you've been doing wrong. Repent. And then they do repent. And then God restores them. And they say, well, but what about all those people you know, who, who oppressed us and did these terrible things to us? And God says, don't worry. Because whatever sin they have committed against you, they have committed against me. Let me read it again. I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley, and I'll put them on trial for what they did to my inheritance, my people Israel. They scattered them among nations, divided up the land, cast lots, sold them into slavery. And then listen to verse 4. Now what have you against me, Tyre and Sidon, and all you regions of Philistia? Are you repaying me for something that I have done? Do you get what God did? He says, you did it to my people, but really you were doing it to me. Really, this was your sin against, against God. And now imagine that you are the one here sinned against. You are the one whose, whose sons and daughters have been sold into slavery. And God comes along and he says, I care about that like it happened to me personally. And I'm going to make it right. And I'm going to make it right. See, this gives hope to God's people who suffer. God has tied up his glory with our good. He takes it personally. He makes it personal. And second, we need to realize that even though God used these nations to righteously chasten the people of God, remember God said, I'm sending armies against you. That didn't make the nations themselves righteous. Can you follow the reasoning there? See, God's saying, I'm going to let this happen. I'm going to bring these nations in. They are going to be part of my judgment upon you. But when they go too far, I'm not going to let them get away with it. I'll take care of it. And I think if we're going to apply this for ourselves today, what we need to see is that we can actually carry out God's will without being godly. We can carry out God's will without being godly. We can, we can go out and say, you know what? God wants people to get to know him. He, he, wants, he wants people to follow Jesus. So we go out and, and we share the gospel with people. And maybe some people come to faith, but we find out that we still, we shared the gospel in terrible, ugly ways that Jesus never would have done it. I think about it, especially the way Christians have treated homosexuality. We didn't see people anymore, did we? We said, that's wrong, you're wrong, you're bad. When God said, that's not what I have intended for you as sexual creatures. And it is a sin to do it otherwise, but I call the sinner to repentance because I love them. 
We shared God's judgments without being loving. We carried out God's will without being godly at all. And do we think it's any sort of coincidence that today there are people who hate Christians? Not because we tell the truth, but because we told the truth without love. Don't get me wrong, there are people who hate Christians because they tell the truth. That's absolutely true. But we don't need to help them hate by hating ourselves. Just because something good happens through us doesn't make us good. We can do good for the wrong reasons, and God sees. See, this helps us understand the righteousness of the people who don't know God as well. You ever look out and you say, well, I know God. I'm trying to you know, live a, a good life, live the way Jesus lived. And I look at some people out there who don't know God, and they're way better than me. You ever had that experience? Come on, you liars. <laughs> yeah, of course we have. We've all had that experience. I should have waited for you to raise your hands. Maybe you weren't going to lie. I don't know. I just seemed more effective to communicate that way. So that was without love. I'm sorry. Uh, see, it's possible to do good things without being godly. That's what's happening. It's possible to do good things without being godly. Because what makes us godly? It's faith in God through Jesus Christ. Because see, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, right? Romans 3.23, we're all broken. We all do things wrong. We all do things we shouldn't do, and we all do it for the wrong reasons. We got all sorts of things we can you know, list that we've done it wrong, and here's the wrong way that we've done it, and so on and so forth. And God said, instead of judging you by, by the amount of good that you do, because if I judge you that way, no one would make it. I'm going to judge you by whether or not you trust me to be good for you in Jesus Christ. What makes us godly? Faith in God through Jesus Christ. This has always been the one and only way. What was Adam and Eve's sin again? It was not believing God. It wasn't like, you know, this fruit is evil. Don't eat the fruit. The heart that eats the fruit is evil. Because it doesn't believe in God. Remember the serpent's temptation? Serpent comes to Eve and says, uh, uh, you know, sh can you not eat any of the fruit? Eve says, yeah, we, we can eat all the fruit except for that one. Uh, we're not supposed to eat that. And the serpent says, oh, you won't die if you eat that. Don't believe God. You won't die. Instead, you'll become like God. God's holding out on you. Don't believe God. The sin was all about not trusting God. From the very beginning, being godly was always about believing in and trusting God. And the person who believes in and trusts God does right things. You get the order of operations there? You start with faith, and then the works come. So, we remember that what God is calling us to here is Believe me. Trust me. Do the things that I say because you believe and trust me. Not because you've made up a list of things, if I just do this, God will like me. No, I've already made that decision. Your job now is to believe and trust. And finally, we need to recognize that it's God's business to dispense justice. It's not primarily ours. And that's a hard one, isn't it? Because we see something that's going wrong, and we want to go make it right. 
And it's not a bad impulse. That's a godly impulse. But we need to recognize that the one who ultimately makes it right is God. Listen to how, what God says. When, when God judges, what does he do? Well, he says, this is what, these are the sins that these people have committed. Scattered my people, divided my land, sold my people as slaves. And then when God pronounces judgment on them, he says, I'm going to rouse them out of the places to which you sold them. He's going to get the people of Israel and he's going to bring them back. And I will return on your own heads what you have done. I will sell your sons and daughters to the people of Judah. And they will sell them to the Sabaeans, a nation far away. The Lord has spoken. This is why justice and judgment aren't primarily our jobs. They are too big for us. Only God can truly visit a person's sin back on them. The only judgments, therefore, that we pronounce ought to be God's judgments already delivered to us. Remember how Jesus said, don't judge lest you be judged? Uh, It's interesting. He goes and he tells a parable to illustrate this. He says, how can you who have a plank in your own eye say to the one with a speck in their eye, let me remove that speck from you? Jesus says, you hypocrite. First, take the plank out of your own eye. Then you will see to remove the speck. See, Jesus is not saying don't judge ever in any way at any time. Jesus is saying don't judge unless your judgments are just. That's taking the speck out of your brother's eye. You can't, if you got all of this sin and terribleness piled up in your own life, you can't go make other people better. You can't go tell them how and who to be. You got to go get right with the Lord. He will clean you up. And then you will have the wisdom to start saying, let me help you. See what God has planned for you as well. And if we want to stay in safety when we do that, don't say anything unless God said it first. Uh, You may notice that the roof on the church is white. Uh, We didn't poll anybody. We didn't ask anyone, what color would you like the roof to be? Do you know why we didn't do that? Do you know how that goes in churches? What color should we paint the social hall? Now we have two social halls because half the people left the church because we couldn't agree on the stinking color for the social hall. Right? Some of you have experienced this. So there was an executive decision that was made. It wasn't, wasn't my decision, so I don't want any of your complaints. <laughs> but I'm not selling out the folks who made it either. And white also reflects the sun away, so it's more efficient. So that's good. But we... Why? Why in the world would we get so angry at each other over paint colors and roof colors? It's because we care more about our own judgments than about God's. What do you think the apostles, what do you think Jesus would say to a church that's, you know, people are fighting over paint color? What do you think Jesus would say? Nothing good. He, he would not congratulate us. He would not tell us, you guys have really made the main thing the main thing here, unless he was being sarcastic. He'd say, what has happened to you? How have you let sin enter into your congregation this way? Because that's what's happening. That's what's happening. 
It's not sinful to debate over a color. It's sinful to divide over a color. We have a hard time keeping the main thing the main thing. But God doesn't. If we're going to communicate judgment to the world, we can only do it with the word of God. Only. If we cannot find scripture, we should keep our big mouths shut. Let scripture speak for you. And here's the blurb for Cal's class now. If we don't know the word of God, if we don't know what God says, then how can we be more than infants in our faith? We might say, well, you know, the Holy Spirit will teach me. The Holy Spirit left you a stinking book. Read the book. And I want to remind you again, because I know the Bible's a little intimidating, or maybe a lot. It's big. It's the longest book I think most of us will ever read. But I want to leave you a little encouragement. Read the Bible doesn't mean go figure it out on your own, please. Read the Bible means come to worship where the word is proclaimed. Read the Bible means get together with other Christians and read together. Read the Bible means go to a men's retreat or a women's retreat and talk about it with people who have studied it. Read the Bible means pick up a devotional, a tool that will help you get in the word. Now, I say that with the proviso, none of these things should ever substitute for actually reading the Bible ourselves. But all of these things can help us read the Bible for ourselves. See, if we speak on our own, if we speak without the Bible teaching us what to speak, how are we possibly going to end up any differently than the nation's? our own sins visited back on our heads. Because we were doing them in ignorance. We just didn't know. We'll get up there and God will say, well, why'd you do all that terrible stuff? And we say, well, God, I didn't know it was wrong. He said, I sent you a book. I gave you a people. I put my spirit in your heart. That's not an excuse. If we want real justice in this world, we need to do a couple of things. The first is we need to make sure that we're looking to God's word. We're looking to God himself. Today, we're studying and saying, what is it that God wants out of us? What does he want out of our neighbors? And we're only speaking what we find in his word. And the second thing that we need to do is we need to recognize that there is a God who will judge at just the right time. We can keep in mind, again, what Lewis was saying. Remember he said, now I... I well, where is it? Lewis pointed out that uh, the reason we don't see God in all of his glory right now is so that we have the opportunity to choose his side before there will be no choice left. But recognize also that there is a day of no choice coming, and that will be a good day as well. 